Folks, I want to welcome you all to On the Edge with K.A. Owens. I'm K.A. Owens, and we're broadcasting from the top of the Habern Building in Louisville, Kentucky. This is 106.5 FM Forward Radio, and you can find out a little bit more about our station if you go to forwardradio.org. Again, I'm K.A. Owens, and you are listening to On the Edge with K.A. Owens. So today we're going to talk a little bit about uh, United States Department of Justice pattern practice uh, investigations. Uh, as some of you may know, the Louisville Metro Police Department has, uh, uh, has been uh, uh, assigned uh, to the, uh, or chosen by, it might be a better word, chosen by the uh, 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 Justice Department for investigation because of things that are going on here in Louisville. So just as a note, uh, these types of investigations began in 1994. The methods available to the Department of Justice and these types of investigations are among the best we have a nation have developed up to this point as far as, uh, quote unquote, reforming uh, the police, with the alternative being releasing all sworn personnel and building a new police department with a new culture with the assistance of police experts, social scientists, and the wisdom of the people. We can't forget there is a strong effort in this country to shift funding away from traditional policing to new models of social support that many believe would be more effective than even well-run and properly managed police departments. Many also believe that the long-term answer is true community control of whatever police that we choose to have. If we read uh, Professor Sam Walker's 20 years of Department of Justice pattern and practice investigations of local police achievements, limitations, and questions, uh, University of Nebraska at Omaha, February 2017, we learn. Now, uh, what he wrote is actually... 30-some pages, but this is a summary that I've put together. The new view is that meaningful police reform requires institutional change. We are long past the old view that police misconduct is the result of a few bad apples. That's on page 9. Many of the required reforms are extremely complex administrative procedures, Yet by definition, the department in question is poorly managed. We are asking a large public bureaucracy to undertake changes it does not understand and lacks the technical capacity to carry out. That's on page 10. Police culture resists reporting and and supervision. The rank and file feels that paperwork is a burden. That's on pages 11 and 12. Uh, some of the settlements uh, agreed to under President Obama and Attorney General uh, Eric Holder did include unions in the process, including investigation and implementation. As a note, unions have opposed virtually all reforms since the 1960s, and that's on page 20. The pattern and practice program has been an unprecedented event in police history. Never before 
has the United States Justice Department undertaken such intense scrutiny of local departments for the purpose of ending systemic abuse? Consent decrees have been successful with some black signing. In no case has a consent decree completely failed. Questions do remain about long-term sustainability of reforms. And that's on page 29. Now, we do respect uh, Professor Sam Walker's years of work on these issues, according to SamWalker.net, you know, who is Sam Walker, widely quoted expert on issues of civil liberties, policing, and criminal justice policy. He is the author of 14 books, uh, which have appeared in a combined total of 39 different editions. Uh, his book, Presidents and Civil Liberties from Wilson to Obama, won the Langham Prize for Best Book in American Legal History for 2012. Walker is Emeritus Professor of Criminal Justice at the University of Nebraska at Omaha, where he taught from 1974 to 2005. He received a Ph.D. in American History from Ohio State University uh, in 1973. Just as a uh, just as a note, um, you know, when uh, according to SamWalker.net, when Sam Walker was a young man, he did go to um, Mississippi to work in the civil rights movement back in the '60s. Uh, and he was there in, uh, in very hard times. Uh, he was a volunteer in the historic Mississippi Freedom Summer in 1964 to help register black voters in the state. One of his fellow activists in a voter registration training session was Andrew Goodman, who, along with Mickey Schwerner and James Cheney, was murdered at the very beginning of the project summer by members of the Ku Klux Klan with the complicity of local police. If we go to page two of uh, Professor Walker's paper, um, it reads, a number of questions about the Department of Justice pattern and practice program have already been raised in the media and by academic studies. Has the program effectively reduced police misconduct? Has it done so in a cost-effective manner? Are the specific reforms chosen by the special litigation section the best means of achieving systemic police reform? Has the program stimulated reforms in other departments by posing a threat of investigation if they fail to institute necessary reforms? Have the reforms been sustained once a consent decree is ended? Has the program uh, intruded in matters that are best left to local authorities? Are there alternative means of achieving systemic police reform in seriously troubled law enforcement agencies? So, uh, and he goes on to say, we have only partial answers to some of these questions, and some of the questions have not been addressed at all. And so, we go to page three of his paper, and he makes clear the Civil Rights Division report cites 40 investigations that resulted in settlements. Over the years, the terminology for the results of investigations has included consent decrees, 
memorandum of agreement, settlements, and technical assistance letters. This paper covers only those settlements that involve the judicially enforced court order. On page four, we read, first, consent decrees for convenience, this term will be used here as a convenient shorthand for all court-enforced settlements, are ended when the court-appointed monitor reports to the district court that the agency has complied with the terms of the decree. Some of the final monitor's reports have been quite laudatory. The final report of the monitor for the Washington, D.C. Metropolitan Police Department, for example, concluded that the department had has substantially transformed itself for the better since the late 1990s. The monitor's conclusions, however, do not take into account any backsliding that might have occurred after the consent decree was lifted. The important issue of the sustainability of court-ordered DOJ reforms is discussed later in this paper. The best post-consent decree assessment of a department is a 2016 report on the Washington, D.C. Police Department completed seven years after the decree was lifted and was authorized as part of lifting the consent decree. While acknowledging that the assessment did not cover all aspects of the required reforms, the report found much that is positive, including a continuing commitment on the part of top management and reductions in the use of the most serious types of force, including firearms. Nonetheless, some significant shortcomings remain. Some changes in use of force reporting system inhibited effective management of uses of force and created problems in resolving the investigation of fatal shootings by officers. The department's early intervention system, described as a star-crossed project, remained a serious problem. On page six of his paper, Walker refers to another author by the name of Chanin. Chanin examined three police departments that experienced a consent decree. Pittsburgh, Washington, D.C., and Cincinnati. He found evidence of the successful impact of the consent decrees during the time of court oversight in all three cases, followed by subsequent backsliding in two. In Pittsburgh, a series of political changes combined with a budget crisis caused standards of officer accountability to erode substantially. Washington, D.C. offered a complex pattern of trends with uses of force following a volatile pattern, while civil litigation payouts declined and stayed low. In Cincinnati, there was little or no backsliding six years after the end of the consent decree. We also have the testimony of several chiefs and former chiefs about their experience with consent decrees. Charles Ramsey, former pol chief of police of Washington, D.C., during its MOA experience, stated that the end result was very positive. Shootings dropped by 80% and have remained low. It gave us credibility with the public. Tom Stryker, 
chief of the Cincinnati Police Department during its consent decree experience explained that prior to the consent decree in Cincinnati, we paid out 10 to 11 million to settle a number of lawsuits. But since the consent decree, the ACLU has not sued the police department. That is a tremendous savings. To be sure, these are anecdotal observations, but as police chiefs with the consent decree experience, there are voices to be reckoned with. At this point in time, however, we do not have a standard for assessing the long-term outcomes of consent decrees since it is unreasonable to assume that no backsliding occurs over time the question becomes how much backsliding is acceptable. Given the challenges of transforming a large public bureaucracy, is it reasonable to call a consent decree experience a success if a department is better than it was beforehand? And of course, how do we define better? This and related questions on the success of consent decrees need more research and discussion. On pages seven and eight of uh, Professor Walker's paper, we read, to achieve constitutional policing, the DOJ program has made a major contribution to police reform by defining a set of best practices in police accountability. Several key elements appear in virtually all consent decrees. They include a state-of-the-art use of force policy. That's number one. Number two, the requirements that officers file complete and accurate reports about each use of force and that their supervisors critically review these reports. Number three, an early intervention system designed to track office performance for the purpose of identifying officers who are engaged in repeated instances of problematic performance. Number four, a citizen complaint process that is open and accessible to potential complaints. Right. These key elements are now widely recognized as the minimum requirements if a police department is to achieve professional and constitutional policing. Prior to the first DOJ consent decree, Pittsburgh, 1997, there was, to the best of this author's knowledge, no equivalent set of account accountability-related best practices. And, uh, of course, when uh, Sam Walker says this author, he's referring to himself. It says no equivalent set of accountability-related best practices. Uh, Professor Walker also writes... In addition to identifying and advancing a set of best practices, one of the great contributions of the pattern and practice program has been the fine-grained evidence in its findings letters regarding what might be called the worst practices in policing. These findings letters provide invaluable detail about the specific police practices that constitute unprofessional and unconstitutional policing. To the best of this author's knowledge, there is no equivalent body of information in social science research on policing, although it can be found in a few investigations, such as the 1991 Christopher Commission report 
on the Los Angeles Police Department. In brief, the most important of these worst practices include the nature and underlying causes of officer use of excessive force. These practices include, but are not limited to, to use of force against persons who pose no threat, striking individuals with weapons, flashlights, or other objects, reckless officer behavior that creates situations where force is necessary, the failure of officers to complete use of force reports and or the failure to complete reports that accurately reflect the details of the incident, the failure of supervisors to critically review officer use of force reports, and the failure of departments to systematically collect and analyze patterns of improper uses of force and to take corrective action. Consistently, the DOJ findings letters identified the underlying causes of these improper actions as management failures and not the individual officers. See the discussion in the next section. This is a major contribution to our understanding of day-to-day unprofessional and unconstitutional policing. On page 11 of Professor Walker's paper, uh, he writes about observations on reporting requirements, the rank and file, and the police culture. He writes, Another valuable and as yet unrecognized contribution of the DOJ pattern or practice programs involves the insight it provides regarding the much-discussed issue of the police culture. Comprehensive change in a police department involves changing the internal culture of that organization. There is much discussion of police culture, but there is lack of substantial research on the subject, particularly with respect to how it might be changed. The DOJ findings letters, however, offer useful insights into this issue. Particularly useful are the complaints of rank-and-file officers reported in the evaluations of consent decrees in Pittsburgh and Los Angeles. Officers in those departments complained about what they regarded as the burdensome paperwork, which in modern departments is largely electronic. Uh, This is in parentheses. Particularly use of force reporting requirements. Sergeants in Pittsburgh, meanwhile, complained about how the new requirements took them off the street and away from what they saw as their important duties. Los Angeles officers in focus groups commonly said they sometimes avoid contact with citizens and look the other way. But as noted earlier, the data on enforcement activities did not support these assertions. The allegedly burdensome reporting and supervision requirements are, in fact, the heart and soul of a system of police accountability. As noted earlier, the various DOJ findings letters have found inadequate reporting of force incidents and the failure of sergeants to critically review force reports talking about use of force. Uh, 
These practices represent the traditional police culture, which involves a systemic lack of officer accountability. The new requirements force officers to make a major change in their routine work habits, uh, completing the paperwork in parentheses. One of the most important aspects of police work regarding use of force. Combined with the new requirement that sergeants critically review use of force reports, officers for the first time in their careers are expected to account fully for their conduct. On page 12, Professor Walker writes about de-policing, which he has in quotation marks. Rank and file officer complaints that reporting requirements take time away from crime fighting related in part to the controversy over de-policing. The de-policing argument is twofold. First, that officers no longer have time for crime fighting responsibilities. Second, that close scrutiny of their enforcement actions and fear of discipline cause them to reduce their self-initiated crime fighting activities. De-policing is not to be confused with the so-called Ferguson effect, which holds that officers reduce enforcement activities because of intense public scrutiny of their conduct. Uh, video recordings, protests. The depolicing issue was investigated by both the Pittsburgh and Los Angeles evaluations and found to be without merit. In both cases, it was not supported by the statistical evidence on officer enforcement activities. Two factors explain the depolicing argument among officers. On the one hand, it arises from the common and understandable grousing among frontline workers about change in their work requirements. For most officers, the changes are indeed difficult to master. At the same time, the depolicing argument is one form of political blackmail employed by police unions to tell mayors and other officials that if you scrutinize us too closely or limit our actions, crime will go up and the public will blame you. This has been called playing the crime card. Russian and Edwards studied 31 jurisdictions where there was a formal settlement with the local police department to determine whether court-mandated reforms were associated with depolicing, defined as a reduction in police officer enforcement efforts, and whether the depolicing was associated with changes in the crime rate. The study found the statistically significant uptick in crime rates immediately following federal intervention, followed by a, a decline over time. This pattern can involve a change in criminal activity accompanying a significant change in police practices, followed by a decline as new police practices become routine. On page 14 of his paper, Professor Walker writes, the first consent decree involving Pittsburgh in 1997 
was quite short when compared with the Los Angeles consent decree, which was negotiated only four years later. The Pittsburgh decree has only three short paragraphs related to use of force policy, documenting force incidents and the review of force incidents. The Los Angeles consent decree, by contrast, has 22 paragraphs devoted to force, including 14 paragraphs devoted to use of force policy, four to the investigation of force incidents, and another four to the adjudication of force investigations. The greater detail in force reporting reflected a deeper understanding on the part of Justice Department lawyers and their consultants on what is required to bring officer use of force fully under control. Merely revising the formal policy on use of force, referring to the do's and don'ts, is not sufficient. Experts in the field now recognize that to get officers to comply with a new policy, it is necessary to establish detailed reporting requirements. Additionally, procedures must be developed to ensure that officers, immediate supervisors, critically review each report without delay for missing detail, ambiguities, contradictions, and canned language. This represents one of the major challenges in changing the work habits of frontline workers and large public bureaucracies. On page 15, Professor Walker writes about professional investigation uh, and review of force incidents. Other relatively new procedures have emerged as best practices to provide more thorough investigation and review of officer use of force incidents. It needs to be said, however, that the DOJ Pattern and Practice Program did not originate these new practices, but played a major role in establishing them as key elements in a comprehensive approach to the control of officer uses of force. The first involves the creation of a special unit, often called a force investigation team, to investigate officer-involved shootings and serious physical force cases. An FIT is likely to improve the quality of investigations. A second innovation is a use of force review board, which does not investigate force incidents for the purpose of discipline, but for the purpose of identifying recurring problems that need correcting. The third is an early intervention system. EIS were developed before pattern and practice program was authorized in 1994, but by including them in virtually every settlement, the DOJ has given them an enormous boost. The three programs described here represent a systematic approach to the control, reporting, and review of use of force incidents. By incorporating all three in a consent decree, the DOJ has established a new best practice regarding use of force. Folks, you've been listening to On the Edge with K.A. Owens. We've been going through 20 years of Department of Justice pattern and practice investigations of local police achievement limitations and questions written by Professor Sam Walker, and that is because the city of Louisville is 
just in the uh, beginning stages of an investigation by the Department of Justice. So uh, a pattern and practice investigation. So we encourage people on their own. It's a 31-page paper written by Professor Sam Walker in February of 2017. So it's well worth reading. So, folks, uh, you've been listening to On the Edge with K.A. Owens. I'm K.A. Owens. Uh, We're broadcasting on 106.5 FM, WFMP-LP, Louisville. And, again, you can find out a little bit more about our station if you go to forwardradio.org.